listening to episode 160 of Shades Midweek. This is a podcast where we talk about theology, culture, and all things Shades. My name is John Mark Durow. I'm one of the three co-hosts here at Midweek, and I am joined as usual by Brad Brown and Jonathan Hafes. Guys, we are wrapping up the school year. Doesn't really mean much for Brad, but for Jonathan <laughs> and I, uh, this means we're about to enter into summertime. This marks, uh, you know, an awesome occasion where some people go on vacation. There's a lot. Maybe there's some traveling going on. Um, so, what are you excited about for the summer, man? Uh, I so <laughs> I don't know that I really have like much planned outside of uh, my wife's parents are celebrating their 50th wedding anniversary. Oh, yeah, that's So right. we're going to head down there for that. Uh, it's and the year of wedding anniversary. Yeah, man, because in actuality, my parents celebrated their 50th wedding anniversary, and we went out of town last weekend uh, for that and wow. had some exciting adventures involving black bears. Oh, yeah. So, you should probably save that for a sermon. I should. I should. <laughs> that's. I'll just leave it right there. <laughs> just leave it alone. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I was sad we missed a podcast last week. Just to let everybody know, oh, you're yeah, a dedicated listener. Uh, John Mark uh, was under the weather in a significant way that Brad nor I wanted to mess with. Nope, don't want to um, be in the same room with that. <laughs> so we 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 couldn't get you even like just a filler episode because John Mark is the uh, the engine behind recording and post doing all the real work the producing so yeah um, so we couldn't we couldn't do anything but uh, but we're we're here this week you mentioned summer you yeah. got anything cool going on for the summer I mean cooler than Jamaica <laughs> well well we did do Jamaica for spring break we're gonna go to Florida for Almost a week uh, in July, and that's going to be fun. We're going to see some of Ashley's family. They're going to meet nice. us down there. Nothing like the Gulf Coast. I love it. Love the Gulf. The beaches there, just just pristine, just beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, it's beautiful. So we're going to have a good time. Outside of that, you know, I think I've got some camps lined up for the kids they're going to go to. Um, it's going to be a good time. Looking forward to summertime. Nice. How about you, Brad? Well, uh, obviously the transition from school year to summer doesn't mean anything for me, so <laughs> right. I'm having trouble thinking about something, but uh, my wife and I are going to go to the beach mm-hmm. with EA, her first beach trip, nice. which is going to be a little less relaxing than I think our previous beach trips, but it's going to be fun mm. and exciting. Don't bring any books. <laughs> Dude, let me, Ain't gonna let, me happen. let me warn you. <laughs> so a whole Be- new world. Beach trips with small children, just yeah, it's a lot of work, bro. <laughs> it's a lot of work. It I'm does, actually getting a little stressed thinking about this vacation. There is hope. Like Holly and I are finally reaching, I think, the 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 moment where things begin to shift. Okay. Um, yeah. And and the beach becomes relaxing again. Yeah. We're, we're not quite there, but we can see. We yeah. can see little glimpses. I mean, for okay. us, Moses okay. Moses is eight years old, so right. I mean, he's kind of at a point to where he can swim. He he knows kind of some limitations, and so it's like if he goes out in the ocean and boogie boards or whatever, like we don't have to constantly be helicopter. Right? Is he right. going to be okay? Is he going to drown? Like none of that stuff. Um, Zion is still five, so we've got to you know we keep an eye on him, make sure you know he's doing okay. But yeah, we're we're getting close to that though. It's uh, it's easier to go to the beach when you have some other children that can play with your children, dude. So yeah. you know, pro, pro tip, mm-hmm. uh, Holly and I virtually all almost every time we go to the beach, 
either her parents or my parents are coming with. Yeah, you could do that too. Yeah, like we're bringing yeah. we're bringing family with because it just it makes it yeah makes it a little bit easier. Yeah, I was like Jordan, you know there are babysitters like with babysitting agencies <laughs> that you can call at the beach and they'll come watch your child. And she was like, "Are you kidding me?" <laughs> And I was like, you know, let's just Listen, let's think and pray about it. Please just get the most stereotypical <laughs> beach pictures made with y'all in like khakis and white. All in white. Yes, please. Yeah, that's please another thing. That. You can hire a photographer now, like a beach photographer. Oh, dude, that's been a thing for forever. Yeah. <laughs> well, I've never done that. See anytime I took, anytime as a youth pastor, I took students oh, yeah. on a beach trip, we always did. Had you a go to Laguna taken. Beach in oh, Panama City? Because that's we, where did, we went. I went to Laguna Beach as a student, and I took my students <laughs> there as a youth pastor. Absolutely. Everybody, if you have not slept on a Laguna Beach bunk bed, are you even a Christian? I'm not the sure. Southeast. I question it. Yeah. That place is gross. I've only <laughs> been there. But Only, it's cheap, John. I didn't, Mark. I didn't go there. As a, I didn't go there. Did you as play a, a gig there? I played a gig there twice. I've spoken there. I spoke at a college retreat once. Yeah, the fun. first time we played a gig there, they tried to throw us in like some room that was just like had like three bunk beds in it. We said, "No, you're you're putting us in a house somewhere. We're not. We're not doing this, <laughs> divas." And then the second For time, real. the second right. time we played there, I just stayed at Jeremy Moore's parents' beach house because we were like, "We are not staying <laughs> on campus. I don't even want to be near this place." <laughs> Dude, as a student, I thought it was awesome because they were like, "Oh pools yeah, and basketball and the beach." Get to go to the beach with all your friends. I mean, just maintain. Amazing. It a little bit, people. Like it doesn't have to. Be they don't gross. have. They don't have to. They don't right? have. They people also don't have any it. money. It doesn't How cheap have to it be is. gross. <laughs> Where else are you gonna go? Yeah, yeah. it's, it's true. also the beach. Everything just feels salty and sandy all the time. That's true. Yeah, yeah. But all you right, know, well, one of the things I love geez, about we're just going on and on. <laughs> one of the things I love about summer is those summer albums. Oh yeah. <laughs> what a transition. <laughs> This is not a summer album. I'm expecting but, a little reggae music. But thanks for trying to tee that up for me, Brad. I really appreciate it. Yeah, you're welcome. All right, we're back in the genre of ambient music. And this one is an interesting collaboration that I, when I saw it pop up on my release radar, I freaked out because I saw the name Brian Eno. You guys know how much I love producer and musician Brian Eno. That's right. He's produced U2. He's produced Coldplay. And he collaborated with a DJ named Fred Again. And their effort is entitled Secret Life. came out on May 5th. Why don't you listen to a little bit of this? The Secret Life of Bees? Just Secret Life. Hidden life? This track is called Come On. So I guess what Fred again is known for is taking vocal samples and manipulating them, changing the pitch, the timing, and creating these samples that kind of become like these ambient signatures, I guess, of his sound. I haven't really listened to a lot of his solo stuff, but him and Brian Eno, man, unbelievable. So check this out. Got a Bonnie Vare flute too uh, as well. Yeah. We should play this before the service. Yeah. On Sunday. I think people would feel really, really weird. <laughs> this feels like something that I don't know. <laughs> I was about to take us down another rabbit hole. What do you think? <laughs> 
This is man. great. I've been listening to this non-stop. This is great. I'm gonna I'm gonna put this on wearing dinner. Secret Life, Fred again. Secret Life, Fred again, and Brian Eno. Brian Eno does it again. Just when you think he's got nothing left in the tank, he's getting old. I was thinking it. John Mark, he I, just blows your mind again. I think we should put out a parody ambient album. <laughs> okay, where we can come Go up on. With- I, I don't know what the the play on Brian Eno's name would be, but uh-huh. but we could I I could be Fred before. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. This is the weird things that are going through my head over here. Let's How about that. Fred sometimes. That, <laughs> I love Instead it. Instead of Fred, Fred again, maybe Fred sometimes. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's amazing. Dude, that I track like is it. called "Come On." Check it out now. Before I leave the segment, I will let everyone know that one of my favorite bands, one of Jonathan's favorite bands and artists, is putting out a new record this Friday. Oh, I figured this might be the album of the week. No, I can't. It it will be the album of the week next week. Okay, good. 100% Dave Matthews Band is dropping their newest studio album titled Walk Around the Moon, and and they have dropped three singles uh, the the third one dropped today. Third one came out today, and I am ecstatic. This may be hit their best record since before these crowded streets. I know that that is very lofty to say of me, but Dude, I'm just th- throwing that out there. All three of these tracks so far, I'm digging. Oh yeah. wow, yeah, it's they're strong lyrically. The the production, the instrumentation. I mean, they once again. I got okay. tickets to the show in Atlanta. Oh goodness! We're wow. Gonna, we're, oh, so so summer plans. That is something go. I'm doing this summer. Yeah, I thought that's what you were going to mention. Sorry, I just that's I why did. I was trying to tee you up. Like, hey, what are you doing this summer? Visiting wink, my wink, in-laws. Wink, wink, <laughs> wink, wink. Uh, well, we're yeah. trying to get tickets to that same show, so we'll let the midweek audience know if that happens because I really want to see them again. Yep. Saw them twice last year. So. All right, well, all right. Oh, uh, we don't have a new jingle yet for the book club. Yeah, just go ahead and cut it short. That's the new jingle, just the first note of the organ. Yeah, we're in a transition here, you know, on Bradford's Book Club. And, but the content's still here, and that's what's important, because that's what we've always been about. I am super jazzed about this book. I think both of you are going to buy this book after I talk about it. Uh-huh. The book is titled, Rembrandt is in the Wind. I have it. Dang it. Do you really? I really do. Oh, man. <laughs> JM, do you have it? I don't. Aha! He is going to buy it. I love the band, the Rembrandts, though. Learning so. to <laughs> Love Art Through the Eyes of Faith by Russ Ramsey, forward by Makoto Fujimura. Whoa! Mm-hmm. Now my ears have been tickled. That's right. <laughs> well, I'm about to keep tickling them. Um <laughs> Do you know Vincent Van Gogh sold only one painting during his lifetime and that during the last three months of his life, he completed an average of one painting every day? Wow. Did you know that Michelangelo's David is covered in a dusting of human skin? Oh. Ugh. Uh, Rembrandt is In the Wind by Russ Ramsey is an invitation to discover some of the world's most celebrated artists and works while presenting the gospel of Christ in a way that speaks to the struggles and longings common to the human experience. This book is part history, part biblical study, part philosophy, part analysis of the human experience, but it's all story. I mean, what else do you want, guys? Wow. The lives of the artists in this book illustrate the struggle of living in this world and point to the beauty 
of the redemption available to us in Christ. Each story is different. Some conclude with resounding triumph, while others end in struggle. But all of them raise important questions about humanity's hunger and capacity for glory. And all of them teach us to love and see beauty. Learn to love art through the eyes of faith. Included in this book, How to Visit an Art Museum. That would be helpful. I've been in a few art museums and, and did not get the full to, experience. Yeah, you don't know how to do it. <laughs> did not get the full experience. How to look at a work of art. Overview of Western art, Renaissance to modern. All right. Russell Moore wrote a forward for this book. Karen Swallow Pryor also wrote. So got some big names here. Just dropping the names. Dropping the names. So some really interesting chapter titles. Dude, this is one of those books that's been sitting on my like to read shelf for, for a while. When it's did it come out? Not, was it not long ago. Not long ago. Maybe a year. March twenty second, twenty twenty two. Yep. A okay. Year. Cool. Yeah, I'm trying to look inside Amazon to see <laughs> the chapter yeah, titles I, in I, a camp. So. I read Fujimura's uh, Art and Faith book, and I thought it was really awesome and uh, really inspiring if you're an artist. It doesn't matter whether you're a musician or a painter or whatever. Um, I, I thought his words and just the way that he connects faith and art, uh, the Christian faith in yeah. particular. Um, Here we go. So. so like the first chapter, just to wet your whistle a little bit, beautifying Eden while pursuing goodness, truth, and beauty matters. Mm. Beyond imagination, Henry O'Tanner, race and the humble power of curiosity. So, lots to read and discuss. This lots would be to chew on. this would be a, a book. You know, I can envision some people from SVCC getting together, drinking some tea. Yep, maybe having a conversation about some, art, some culture, theology, and the finer things of life. So, check it out. Rembrandt is in the wind, learning to love art through the eyes. That's probably one of my uh, of faith. This favorite, is my favorite, favorite pick of yours. Wow, this is my favorite yeah. pick of yours in a long time. It's nice, and I anticipated <sighs> it. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, we don't have any new emails today. That's right. We sent out a bat signal two weeks ago. We said, send in your emails, send in your questions. We're about to talk about tongues. I'm sure that maybe some of you might have some questions about such a controversial topic that where there are varied and weighed perspectives on all sides of the matter, but we didn't get any. We didn't get a single question. It's because everyone knows all the answers, apparently. And That's it's right. not like we were going to, you know, you could come in with any sort of preconceptions. No one was going to judge anyone with any of the questions, and we didn't get any. You could even say, please don't read my name. Like, like you, That's could even, right. like you, you could write in with a question and be like, a pseudonym, because like, sometimes people are are yeah. a little bit shy yeah. about asking their particular sure. question, especially if they feel like it's controversial. Right. If they feel like, oh, everybody else knows the answer to this, and I don't want to seem like I. No. If you have a question and you would rather not have your name be used, just let us know. We'll we'll respect that for sure. Exactly. Right. And I will say, just to preface, this is the third installment of our series on spiritual gifts here on midweek. So if you haven't listened to the, uh, the previous two episodes, which would be episode 158 and 159, you're going to want to do that. It could be helpful uh, for this conversation as we're specifically, uh, Jonathan is going to lead us in a conversation on tongues. Is that what we're doing today? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. We can just dive right in. As, okay. as JM said, you know, we, uh, we did kind of a generic episode about spiritual gifts, just in general, what they are, how do you discover yours? And then, you know, the, the last episode we did, we gave some examples of spiritual gifts, kind of like broad categories, but we left off the table 
Um, some of the gifts that are, I don't know, there's just more controversy surrounding them. Speaking in tongues, the interpretation of tongues, which, which kind of go together. Uh, and prophecy. Uh, those are controversial gifts. They were controversial in Corinth when Paul fo- first wrote you know, to the Corinthians. And they're still controversial today. Um, and because they caused so many issues in Corinth, uh, Paul talked about them in, in great detail uh, in that letter to the Corinthians. And so that's what we're going to do today. We're going to venture into the conversation about tongues. And then next week, the plan is to venture into the conversation about prophecy. But before we dive in, I do want us to notice something. So the overall conversation that Paul has in 1 Corinthians on spiritual gifts takes place from 1 Corinthians 12 through 1 Corinthians 14. We've pretty much been sitting in 1 Corinthians 12, which is where he has kind of his general conversation. Now we're about to sit in 1 Corinthians 14, which is where he specifically zooms in on tongues and prophecy. But obviously, right in the middle there's 1 Corinthians 13. And I want us to notice that before we start this conversation uh, today. Most people that are familiar with 1 Corinthians 13 are familiar with it out of context. They just simply know it as the love chapter. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. You might hear that a lot at weddings. However, this chapter falls right in the middle of Paul's discussion about spiritual gifts. And it's because, like he's been telling us, spiritual gifts are about building up one another in love. They're not about yourself and you looking super spiritual. They're not about, if you could imagine a spiritual gift as like a flashlight, it's not about shining a light on yourself. Uh, They're about shining a light on Jesus. They're about strengthening the faith of those around you in love by pointing them to Jesus, shining a light on him. So just... Let's start out with 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 through 8. Paul says, If I speak of the, in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and knowledge, but I have, and I have the faith so as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have and I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. In other words, it doesn't matter what spiritual gift you have, what good deed you do, any of that kind of stuff. Like, if it's not being exercised in love, then Paul's like, it's lost its point. And that's when he goes on to say, love is patient and kind. It does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or, or rude. M- many of the Corinthians, you got to realize, they were boasting in their spiritual gifts. They were being arrogant about their spiritual gifts. And so that's why he's talking about this. He says, love does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. In other words, Paul says, a day is coming when all the gifts you have will pass away. Mm. But, but love is the eternal mark of the kingdom. Like the greatest sign that the Holy Spirit lives in us and we're citizens of God's eternal kingdom is not that we have powerful spiritual gifts. The greatest sign that we're a part of his kingdom is that we love with his love. Spiritual gifts are to be exercised in love for one another, to build up and strengthen one another's faith, to shine a light on Jesus. That is at the heart, quite literally, it's in the middle. It's at the heart of Paul's discussion of speaking in tongues and prophecy. Um, And I think it's really important for us to note that because 
I mean, first of all, the Corinthians weren't using the spiritual gifts that way. Uh, they weren't using them to shine a light on Jesus, but a light on themselves. Uh, and often today, these gifts, because they're still controversial, the way that Christians can engage them is not in a way that reflects love at all. So it's important for us to highlight what Paul highlights right at the beginning of this discussion. As a matter of fact, he says to to deal with prophecy in tongues in any other way than in love is immature. He says that right in the middle of his discussion of it. So 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 20. He says, brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, in other words, be innocent from sin, but in your thinking, be mature. Paul says the way you're thinking, Corinth, and and fighting about spiritual gifts, it's immature. It's childish. It's like like a kid uh, claiming to have the best toy. I don't know if y'all ever have this happen in your house, Brad, probably not so much yet. All the time. But, uh, but John Mark, you know, like, like your, your kids will be fighting over like who's actually got the coolest or the best thing, trying to make the other person jealous or what have not. Um, I mean, the Corinthians, they were taking the gift of tongues and holding it up as a sign of being super spiritual. Mm. Like we have the best toy. We have the best gift. We're the ones who are really connected with the Holy spirit. And that's evidenced by, by speaking in, in tongues. Mm-hmm. And so spiritual gifts that should have been about building up the body became all about building up oneself, shining a light on on oneself. And the people in Corinth that didn't speak in tongues, they they were made to feel like they weren't even part of the body. You can see that clearly as you read through chapter chapter 12. And here's the day, there are still Christians today in certain circles that will say the same thing that many of the Corinthians were saying. There are Christians today that will say, if you really have the Holy Spirit, then you will speak in tongues. Um, that's it. If we're, if we're going to put kind of positions of the way people think about tongues on a continuum, uh, that's on one extreme end. There are Christians that the way they'll talk about this gift is, is you, if you really got the Holy Spirit, you will speak in tongues. Paul says the opposite. 1 Corinthians 12, verses 4 through 6. Now, there are a variety of gifts but the same spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all and everyone. Paul says there's all sorts of different gifts. Everybody doesn't have the same one. And no matter what gift you have, it's the same Holy Spirit working in you. Just to make sure we understand, he makes the point again at the end of the chapter. Chapter 12, verses 29 and 30. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? What you got to know is like the grammar of the Greek right there requires the answer to all of those questions be no. Like, in other words, that's that's the point Paul is making. No, not everybody's a prophet. No, not everybody works miracles. No, not everybody speaks in tongues. There's all sorts of different spiritual gifts. None of them are given to every single Christian. So Paul tells those in Corinth who've been saying, hey, everybody's got to speak in tongues. Paul says, no, not everyone has that gift. Mm. But that's not where the conversation is. Because <laughs> he goes on to say, however, some people do have that gift. And that leads us to the other end of the uh, the continuum, if you will. The what's, what's the word I'm looking for? The, uh, I don't know. Yeah, continuum. continuum Timeline? Yeah, spectrum? The, the spe- spectrum. Spectrum. That's the word. The other end of the spectrum. I knew we would find it. Yeah. Um, that's why we got this think tank together. In here. Right. I'm telling you. Um, 
So there are Christians in, in circles today who would say nobody has the gift of speaking in tongues. Uh, they'd also say nobody prophesies. Those gifts have, have ceased. So on one end of the spectrum, we have uh, what would be a classical uh, Pentecostal position, uh, and not all Pentecostals embrace this, but it's more of a classical Pentecostal position where that says everybody who has the Holy Spirit's got to speak in tongues. On the other end, and that would probably happen through a second baptism. Right, it would happen. That's right, and that for gets all us believers, into a whole nother conversation. Right, um, second baptism Pentecostals. I've heard that before. Or a second blessing. Right, second, second blessing. They call it different things. It's but. this idea that after your initial experience of salvation, you have a subsequent experience. Yes, where you are baptized with the Holy Spirit, and that is evidenced by speaking in tongues. And so every Christian that's been baptized in the Spirit will speak in tongues is how that that logic kind of plays out. Yep. On the other end of the spectrum, you have what's known as the cessationist position. And that is those who believe that these kinds of gifts have ceased. They'll have all sorts of different uh, reasons that they'll say that. Most of the time, it has to do with these gifts being unique to the new to the early church age as a special kind of evidence to the veracity of Christianity, if you will. Um, and so they were unique for that time. Usually people are going to say it's limited to the time of the, the apostles. So once the apostles all die off, these gifts die off with it. There are all sorts of different ways that people will kind of come at that to make a claim that these gifts have ceased. Mm-hmm. None of them are convincing to me at at all for a host of reasons. We could get into those, but I'll just give one right here. So I, I grew up in circles that were cessationists yeah. that believed these gifts had ceased. Well, and there's some big names too. I mean, uh, so Tom Schreiner, right? New Testament scholar, uh-huh. Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Jonathan and I have benefited greatly from a ton of his work. He's Does he have a book where he makes an argument for cessationism. He does. I actually wrote a book review of it on the EFCA <laughs> That's blog right. where I disagreed with Dude, it. Dude, I forgot about <laughs> that. Right. That's hilarious. We're going to link that We're gonna in link the show notes. Words. In the show notes. That's right. Oh, I, go yeah. a little, I go a little over the top with the, uh, with the fire Holy Spirit metaphor. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's a little over the amazing. top. I just, say, I just say that to say it's not like this is a fringe position that a no. few people in you know rural Idaho hold. No, not at Nothing all. Nothing against rural Idaho, of course. <laughs> all, all of our listeners in Idaho are going to be really mad. <laughs> Yeah, that that was why I brought Preston that. Preston Sprinkles in Idaho. Is he really? Yeah, he is. Of course he is. I mean, he's not a cessationist. I'm not surprised by that right. at all. Yeah, yeah. of so, course. So yeah, Ooh, um, yeah. Let's get back on. This. So <laughs> let's redirect. Let's redirect. So I grew up in these circles, and when I wanted to know why, why do we think this? The primary scripture, because I mean, that's the thing. Is like, take me to the text, because there's all sorts of arguments you can make based on quote unquote logic. You know, so like, yep. oh, it was limited to the time of the apostles. Great. Where where's the the scriptural evidence for that? Or <coughs> there are arguments from history that will say, well, we don't have evidence. It seems from looking at church history that these gifts kind of die out and and talk about them dies out, and it isn't really revived until like the modern era with the Azusa Street revivals that happened in the early twentieth century and blah yeah. blah 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 blah. And people will point to abuses normally right, next. Right. And I'm yeah. like, okay, great. Yeah. Take me to the Bible. And so where I would be taken was 1 Corinthians 13, which is the chapter we're in the midst of, and what I read just a moment ago, love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. 
As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. Nobody ever talks about that knowledge thing right there. <laughs> um, but then we're given the reason. Paul says, for we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. That's normally where people would stop reading for me and they would say, see, it says tongues and prophecies, gifts of knowledge, they're, they're going to pass away. And, and when? Well, when the perfect comes. Well, what does that mean? And I would get all sorts of different answers. The most stereotypical one had to do with the canonization of Scripture. We can get into all that if we want to. Um, but the problem is, is that Paul tells us what he means by when the perfect comes. If you just keep reading in verse 12, he says, for now like in the present day, we see in a mirror dimly. But then, when the perfect comes, face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Paul says we get glimpses of God through these partial gifts operating through flawed human beings. But it's not perfect. We have knowledge of God, but even it's not perfect. It's like looking in a a dimly lit mirror. And the day is coming when you're going to see face-to-face. The day of perfection is coming. That, that can only be when you behold Jesus face-to-face, either when you die or when Christ comes again. It is pretty universally almost accepted at this point. Like even most cessationists have given up on this. I argument. was going to say, is that still most of them have the given go-to up on this passage? But, okay. but it is pretty universally accepted that Paul is clearly talking about the second coming of Christ here. When we are in the full presence of Jesus, there will no longer be need for these partial gifts. Right now, they're like flashlights, people shining a light on Jesus. But on that day, when we see Jesus face to face, he will be before us shining as brightly and clearly as the sun. And what good is a flashlight when the sun has risen? Like that's, that's the idea. These gifts will not be needed to reveal partial glimpses of him because he'll be fully revealed. But until that day, these gifts have been given to help strengthen our faith in Jesus. There, there's, there's one other kind of that I would say is probably the more central argument that's still used uh, to talk about from a cessationist position, mm-hmm. like, like why they embrace a cessationist position. But it actually applies more to prophecy. That's what I was thinking. Yeah, so we'll get mm-hmm. into that next time like what that argument is from a cessationist position and why i don't buy it and that's the one that i actually engage the most in that blog yeah um, with with tom schreiner because that's his key argument that's the one that i hear the most and see circulating the most yeah and it's interesting that the conversation around the continuation of these gifts seems to center on that for the cessationist now because i think you're right exegetically it's a hard argument to make and there might be some debate about this but even historically to say that the gifts completely ceased and there's no evidence in the early church or subsequently of these gifts being used is pretty hard from a historical standpoint. It it is really hard and it's getting harder because we continue to make more discoveries, you know, and those kinds of things. So, so Mm -hmm. yeah, there's definitely some evidence there, but yeah, most of the time, if you encounter cessationist argument, if you talk about tongues, the arguments are almost always going to be made experientially. Mm Mm-hmm. And prophecy, the arguments are going to be made theologically. Now, there yeah. is some theological argument still 
surrounding tongues. I'll, I'll mention some of that here in just in just a minute. Um, I actually engaged a friend of mine recently, really great friend, love him dearly, um, and we are like ninety nine percent compatible theologically, <laughs> but not on this issue. And and so we 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 crossed uh, some some theological swords recently on the issue of tongues, and he oh, would be very mad at my characterization right man, now. Man, we should have brought him in. Of his, that would have been great. I don't know if he'd do it. I can ask him. I can ask him. <laughs> Um, I'll moderate, but you'll moderate our debate. Yeah. Um, anyway, Mr. I, President, your time's up. I'm sorry. Just, your time's should up. Should I just play back all of our conversations? I have them because it was all through Marco Polo. Oh, so wow. I have our conversation. Yeah, just put them on here without his knowledge. Oh my goodness. Anyway, okay. All right, but we'll get into more of that that later. Yeah. But so to to enter into the conversation about tongues proper. All right. Um, because these gifts, I do believe, are still active, which if you believe they're still active, then you embrace what's called a continuationist position. And that's the middle portion of the spectrum we were talking about. So on one, on one end, we've got kind of classical Pentecostalism. On the other end, we've got cessationism. If you're anywhere in the middle that embraces, well, I think these gifts are still around, but not all Christians have them, and all that, then you're somewhere in the spectrum of what would be called a continuationist. Uh, I, the name comes from, I believe these gifts continue. It's mm-hmm. pretty easy. Yep. Um, so, yeah, so we believe these gifts continue. And so when we're talking about uh, tongues, biblically, what I think we've seen so far are two truths that put us in that continuationist camp. Truth number one, not everyone speaks in tongues. And if you don't, you should never be made to feel like you are a second-class Christian, like you don't fully have the Holy Spirit if you don't speak in tongues. So that's truth number one. Not everyone speaks in tongues. Truth number two that we've seen, some people do. Some people do. And if you do, you should not be made to feel like you're a fraud or like you're off your rocker or a crazy Christian or something like that. So those are the true truths we've seen so far. So as a diverse body with diverse gifts, if we affirm some people do have the gifts, uh, the gift of tongues, then, then I think there are three important questions that we need to explore. Uh, question number one, what exactly is speaking in tongues? Question number two, what's the purpose of speaking in tongues? And question three, what is its place in the church? All right. These three questions are are important to all of us. But even if you don't speak in tongues, these questions are important to you because, I mean, if you're here at Shades, then we believe there are some people who do. And we believe that there's a place for it, even when we're gathered in corporate worship. And so this should be important to to you. So let's just dive in. Question number one, what is speaking in tongues? So look at 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 2. Unless you're driving, then don't, don't do that. Just trust me to read it. <laughs> All right. Uh, Paul says, for one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. So the first thing we see right here is tongues, at least insofar as Paul is describing it in 1 Corinthians 14, is speech directed towards God. So what, what do we call speech directed towards God? Well, prayer or praise. And the second thing we see is it's not relayed through a language known by the one who's speaking it. So that, that means, well, it could be an actual human language, that the speaker doesn't know. So in other words, like if I just started speaking German right now, I don't know German. I've never learned German. Well, that's technically I did. You took a class. I did take a class. but Bad I, example. I can't speak German. 
Swahili. Okay, I've never learned even a word in Swahili. All right. So if I just started speaking Swahili, that could definitely be considered speaking in tongues. This is this is at least what we see in Acts chapter 2. Uh, happen with the disciples at Pentecost. They begin speaking in languages they've never learned, but it's the languages of all sorts of speakers from all sorts of different countries proclaiming uh, the gospel. And this this is where one cessationist argument will come in, and they'll say, well, that's what we see happen in Acts 2. Therefore, all tongue speaking, every reference to speaking in tongues is that mm-hmm. from then on. And what we see in modern circles called tongues a lot is not that. Yep, not Theref- other languages. Yeah. yeah. Therefore, it's it's not tongues. So I would push back against that argument because I do not think that can hold in First Corinthians fourteen at all. Uh, I'm not even a hundred percent sure that it holds all the way throughout Acts. I think it does. I can talk about that if y'all want me to later. But I definitely don't think that's what's happening in 1 Corinthians 14. I went back and forth with my friend over this for a little bit. Um, oh, really? Yeah, yeah, we went back and forth yeah. over this point. Interesting. Yeah, it's um, a big one. But uh, I think that right here, there also seems to be room for speaking in tongues to not be related to any known human language. Uh, right here in the text, it's called an utterance of mysteries in the spirit. An utterance of mysteries. In the spirit, uh, this is what causes some people to refer to this type of speaking in tongues as a prayer language. Um, it, other other texts that I think kind of hit at this. If we go back to First Corinthians thirteen and verse one, Paul is giving an example here, and he says, "Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels," he seems to distinguish between two different types of tongues. Mm-hmm. He does also throughout chapter 12 talk about there are varieties uh, of tongues. And then if we look again in 1 Corinthians 14 itself, if we look down to verse 13, therefore one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. Uh, there's this idea uh, present here that even though the speaker themselves doesn't know this language, they could pray to be given a supernatural interpretation. Um, I think that correlates to the fact that the tongue that is being spoken um, is something that's given just by the Holy Spirit, mm-hmm. not necessarily like, like we could talk about interpretation as a natural gifting. Like I'm gifted to interpret because I've learned Swahili, so I can interpret for you. Yep. But that's not the way that Paul's talking about interpretation right here. He's talking about praying in order to be given interpretation. So I think a similar thing is going on right here. Not only that, but just as you go through the overarching flow of the way Paul talks about tongues all throughout the chapter of 1 Corinthians 14, I think there are several points that he makes that are rendered pointless if he's talking about known human languages. Yeah. Um, and so, for instance, almost everyone who locks in on tongues has always got to be a known human language. It's what we see in Acts chapter 2. Mm-hmm. You know, They're going to lock in on that as it has an evangelistic purpose. It's right. for the reason of people who don't speak a language being able to understand and hear the gospel. Well, number one, 
that's not what's going on in Acts chapter two in the first place. Right. Like, yeah, that's that's a great point. Yeah. Uh, all of those Jews there who were hearing the gospel spoken in their own language, they also would have spoken Greek. Uh, they also would have spoken most likely Aramaic, probably would have known some Hebrew too. In other words, there was a lingua franca that they could have heard the gospel in very easily. There's a different reason that God is having mm-hmm. uh, the gospel being proclaimed in this whole host of languages, and it, it, it's for the purpose of signifying that this is the fulfillment of the prophecy in Joel chapter 2. This is the gospel that is now going out to the nations. Um, and, yeah, so there's there's a symbolic prophetic fulfillment that's going on right there. Yep. Uh, but But not only that... Um, if you want to argue that the purpose of tongues being a natural known human language is always evangelistic, and so this is some of the point that, that my friend made uh, in Corinth. Corinth was this like multi-ethnic city, a port city, had sure. all sorts of people coming through it all the time, all sorts of languages, yada, yada, all of those things. And so you know, it would make sense that uh, tongues might show up there a lot more for the purpose of you know, evangelism. Paul is going to talk later in 1 Corinthians 14 in, to the exact opposite effect. He's going to talk about tongues as a sign of judgment on right. unbelievers, not something that's actually going to be evangelistic towards them. Yes. So it's just, it makes no sense in that, in that way. Well, and even within the book of Acts, you have Acts 10, you have Acts 19. And to my knowledge, I need to go back and check on this, but... You have tongues spoken only in the presence of believers. Right, right. There's no evangelistic. There's no evangelistic thrust to it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a hundred percent. And and so and and again, it's it's symbolic of the gospel going forward to the nations. Go ahead. Well, and like you already said, I think just going back to First Corinthians fourteen two, that whoever speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God. Right. So what is human language? Whatever it is, it's one human communicating to another. Well, and and the reason that he says he speaks to God and not to men is that he gives the grounding clause. The very next thing he speaks to God, not to men for no one understands him. Mm-hmm. Like there's an assumption on Paul's part that I don't care who shows up in that room. We're in a crazy multi-ethnic port city where there could be people from all over, you know, and yep. no one's going to know what they're saying. Right. Why? Cause he utters mysteries yep. in the spirit. There's something specific going on here. And so for all of those reasons and more, I think that there is definitely uh, room, uh, not just room, but I would affirm that included under the banner of speaking in tongues uh, is speaking in a way um, that is not uh, a known human language. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah. uh, Other people might want to push back let, let, let me give one more qualification right here and people go in a lot of different directions right here some may want to give pushback okay jonathan so you're saying this could be like some kind of spiritual language call it an angelic language I- anything you want to right there does that mean if we recorded this stuff and studied it long enough we could figure out oh when the person makes this sound it means this because we're getting an interpretation of it you know, through the gift of interpretation. So we could compare what was spoken to the interpretation and eventually we could translate this thing, yada, yada, yada. No, I don't think that's what's going on at all. Um, I think that the uh, the gift of tongues can bear linguistic characteristics, but I think it is specifically and purposefully meant to be mysteries. Mm-hmm. 
uttered in the spirit. I don't think it's yeah. possible to, to figure it out. Not something you can put in a textbook. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and then everyone can learn yeah, and so, get on page. Because that's one of the arguments that will be made for like, well, this isn't actually, they're not speaking in any kind of language. It doesn't conform to all of the patterns. It's just kind of nonsense babble, if you will. And, yep. and I think what is being displayed um, is specifically what's being described right here in 1 Corinthians 14, um, that they're uttering mysteries in the spirit. Mm-hmm. Um, some people might want to tie it into Romans 8 that talks about the Holy Spirit praying for us with groanings that are too deep for words. Yeah, Possible connection, not too explicit, but but I think it's getting at a similar idea. Uh, yeah. not, to, not to divert too much uh, because we're kind of getting into interpretation of tongues, but I was uh, reading this Sam Storm's book, The Language of Heaven, Crucial yeah. Questions About Speaking in Tongues. Which, which is the number one, I don't know if we're going to do resources at the end, uh-huh. but... That's the number one book I would recommend on speaking in tongues. Yeah, it's if, the most comprehensive. Yes. If you want to take the deep dive as far as what the text is saying and really wrestle with 1 Corinthians 12 to Old 14. Hold on. Is that where you're going? Yep. D.A. Yeah, Carson yeah. has a book called Showing the Spirit. Um, now, that book is is it's going to feel like dry reading. It's much more technical. It's getting into the details of the text, all that Swallowing kind of stuff. sawdust is one of my professors <laughs> would say. Oh, gosh. It's not going to be like <laughs> riveting reading, but if you're wanting to get into the nitty-gritty of what does 1 Corinthians 12 to 14 say, that's where I would say go. But as far as just like reading that's going to be engaging and easy to read, easy to understand, Sam Storm's book is the best. And what's great about this book is, is he does it in a way that's like question and answer. Yep. So you can even, you don't have to read it straight through. Like yeah, you, can you can just jump around. You can look for yep. what are my questions and, yep. and go there. So anyway, go ahead. Yeah, but on. he said under uh, what the gift of interpretation of tongues is, he says, I'm hesitant to use the word translate to describe this right. gift, given the fact that this term may lead people to conclude that there will always be a one-for-one or word-for-word rendering of the tongues uh, utterance into the vernacular of the people. There is a spectrum from literal translation at one end to broad summation at the other end whenever the gift of interpretation is exercised. And then he uses some examples like someone with the gift of interpretation may provide a literal word-for-word rendering that corresponds in every conceivable way to the content of the tongue. It would be the same in length and emphasis Um, There may also be a somewhat looser, more fluid rendering that captures the essence of the utterance. Those who engage in the translation of the original text of Scripture into other languages, such as English, often refer to this as dynamic equivalence. Uh, The totality of what was spoken in tongues is brought over into the words of the interpreter, but it may not be in a word-for-word form. So, and there's some other examples. I don't want to go on because it's it's all great. It's all everyone should buy this book and read some sections in here because it covers so much, man. Yeah, mm-hmm. Absolutely. But, but yeah, just to kind of back up what you were saying. Right. Like, it's not always going to be like this one for, you know, you can't just look at it as like literal translation, like we're translating English to Spanish or right. whatever. You well, know? And I, I do think, mm-hmm. I do think it's key that, you know, the word of choice is interpretation, interpretation right. of tongues. Right. You know? Um, and so I, I think there's, uh, we would talk about interpreting prophecy. We would talk about interpreting scripture. And we all know what we mean by those things. Mm-hmm. It's the getting at the heart of and giving the sense. It's rendering what is uh, not currently comprehended, comprehensible. And I think that's what's going on with the interpretation of tongues. It's rendering something that none of us can comprehend into a comprehensible uh, form. 
So, so yeah, so that's, so our first question, what is speaking in tongues? We've given a broad, <laughs> general uh, definition. Could be other known human languages that are unknown to the speaker. Uh, could be other, something that's not known to anybody, whether we want to call that a prayer language, a heavenly language, people term it differently. Paul just calls it tongues. <laughs> <laughs> so that leads to our second question. Well, what's the purpose of that? Because that's what we're going to hone in on. <coughs> Okay, um, right. not the speaking of known human languages. We're going we're gonna to hone in on what Paul's dealing with in 1 Corinthians 14. Well, if nobody has a clue what's being said, not even the person saying it, then what's the point? You know, how does that build up the body? How does that strengthen others' faith in Jesus? Paul points out that problem himself. So verses 6 to 12. Now, brothers and sisters, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? In other words, unless I bring something to you in a language you understand. He says, if even lifeless instruments such as a flute or harp do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, how will anyone get ready for battle? So you can think like if JM and the band just all kind of did whatever, um, I mean, some people might think it's jazz, but other than, I'm just kidding. I love jazz. Jazz exploration. Or I some people jazz. might think that's a normal Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. But like, how could anybody sing along? They couldn't. And so Paul goes, so with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? He doesn't say you need someone who knows that language. That's not what he says. He says, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. Some people will use that phrase, the cessationists will say right there, and go, oh, see, see, he is talking about no languages, but this is an analogy. And by definition, an analogy only works if the thing he's talking about is different. So, there are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language... I will be a foreigner to the speaker and the speaker foreign to me. So with yourselves, since you're eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. So Paul says tongues doesn't build others up because they have no way of knowing what's being said. It's not building up the body towards Christ. And when we get together, that's our goal. Strive to excel in building up the church. It's like when the band gets together. The goal is music <laughs> and for us to be able to participate and sing along. Our goal is to build up the body. So, Paul says, uninterpreted tongues don't do that. He also tells us about another problem with uninterpreted tongues. I, I talked about this a minute ago. He says they're not just problematic for believers, because they don't build up the body. He says they're even more problematic or hazardous for unbelievers. So, check out verses 21 to 23. In the law, it is written, by people of strange tongues and by lips of foreigners will I speak to this people. And even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord, end quote. Paul goes on. Thus, tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say you are out of your minds? In other words, they won't go, oh, check out this nice, convenient evangelistic tool. That is present for me. No, <laughs> Paul, when that he, language sounds familiar. <laughs> right. Yeah. But yeah. When, when Paul says uh, in the law it's written, he's quoting from Isaiah 28. Sometimes they'll just refer to the entirety of the Old Testament as the law. 
So he's quoting from Isaiah 28, where God was speaking a word of judgment against his people. Basically, in Isaiah, God says, I'm going to bring a foreign nation whose language you don't understand to invade you. So when you get people showing up here and you don't get what they're saying, that's a sign of God's judgment. Mm -hmm. So Paul compares that to unbelievers walking into a chaotic gathering of Christians speaking in tongues. He says they're all going to think you're crazy, that you're out of your minds, and they're going to walk out with hearts hardened against the gospel, and God's judgment is still going to be over them. It's, it's a sign of judgment. So Paul says uninterpreted tongues doesn't build up the body towards faith in Jesus, and it doesn't lead unbelievers to faith in Jesus. So for these two reasons, look at what Paul says in verses 18 to 19. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, in other words, in the assembly that's gathered, I would rather speak five words with my mind, in other words, in an intelligible language, to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. So apparently the Apostle Paul speaks in tongues quite a bit himself, but rarely when he's in the midst of gathered Christians. When he's with other believers, he wants to instruct them with intelligible speech. So the question becomes, all right, Paul, well, then when do you do all of this speaking in tongues? Well, if he doesn't do it publicly, then the assumption would be he primarily uses it privately Mm -hmm. in his prayers. Well, well, why? What's the point? What's the purpose? Look back at verse 4. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself. In other words, speaking in tongues primarily doesn't build up the body, point other people to Jesus. Instead, it builds up the individual. It strengthens one's personal faith in Jesus through feeling intimate with him in prayer. So Paul says that the primary place that he uses tongues isn't amongst the body. It's it's in private. Now, really quickly, before anybody gets upset with me, (laughs) does that mean there's never a time for tongues to be used among the body? No, (laughs) there is a time and a place. After all, at the very end of this chapter, verse 39, Paul is going to tell us, do not forbid speaking in tongues. And he means when the church is gathered. That seems pretty explicit. Yeah. Mm. You know, so that takes us to our, our third question. You know, we, we've talked about what tongues is. We've talked about what the purpose is. Its primary purpose is it builds up and strengthens the faith of the person that's exercising it. Mm. Um, so the third question is, what is the place of speaking in tongues in gathered worship? Can it ever have a purpose there? Can it build up the faith of others there? Paul says, yes. Verse 13. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. In other words, I'll interpret. I will sing praise with my spirit, so I'll I'll sing in tongues. This is a common practice in certain areas. People, as they're singing, they'll sing some in tongues. But I will sing with my mind also. I'll, I'll interpret it. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, in other words, speak in tongues, How can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen? Amen means yes, I agree. How can they say amen to your thanksgiving when he doesn't know what you're saying? 
For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. Paul says the way for tongues to build up the body is for there to be interpretation so that everyone can know what's being said. And so he gives very specific instructions about what this should look like, how it should take place. Verse 26. What then, brothers and sisters, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation, let all things be done for building up. It's all going to be aimed at that. So he tells us how tongues can do that. If any speak in a tongue... Let there be only two, or at most three. In other words, very interesting how practical Paul's getting here. In other words, he's like, this shouldn't dominate. No one gift should dominate. You know, two or three, and each in turn. So not over top of one another. Each in turn. And let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. So, just to unpack those instructions a little bit right there. First of all, we need to realize that building one another up through spiritual gifts takes place in loving relationships. Mm. In, in other words, the situation that Paul is describing is the coming together of a body of believers that are in relationship with one another. They're brothers and sisters in Christ. There's, there's relationships of love and trust that exist, and it's within those trusting relationships that we build one another up through spiritual gifts. In other words, at Shades Valley Community Church, not anyone can just walk in off the street and teach. Right. Not going to happen. we got to share some type of trust relationship to let someone exercise that gift in our body. Not anyone can just walk in off the street and keep the kids in the nursery. <laughs> you know, they, there's a process they got to go through, a process that helps to build trust. Likewise, someone can't just walk in and say, hey, I've got a prayer uh, in a tongue to speak before the body. Uh, to speak before the body in, in any form, there's got to be uh, love and trust. We desire, we, we have an open microphone. Like we desire for people in this body uh, to be able to speak into the life of the body, uh, but that's got to happen through uh, in the context of a relationship of trust. This is why this is why people go. One of the reasons why people go to an elder first. So we have a we have a chair that's designated as the elder chair. Probably need to do a better job of identifying it. But we need like a throne. That, that's only a throne. Oh, yeah, elder very throne. tall, gold plated. We're, we're moving backwards. Like all, all of the pastors in my church growing up literally sat, the not tall in thrones, back. but in, church, in in these really special chairs. <laughs> oh. Anyway. It's a joke. Can you imagine a, us, like you and me, sitting on up stage. on stage? Like the band's playing. We're just yep. kind of sitting up on stage. <laughs> I love it's it. A thing. Oh, my I word. I think that's great. No, anyway. I'm so glad we don't do that. Anyway, but, but this is one of the reasons we have that elder chair. So if somebody has something they want to share at the mic, they come to them, and one of the things this communicates is uh, oh, it, it, it helps to build trust. 
it's not like, oh, well, me coming and speaking on the microphone is about me and about what I want, and I'm just going to do it. I don't care what anybody else thinks. It's like, no, I want to do this for the good of the body. I'm willing to go to leadership in the body and to talk with them and to discern with them. Is this something that should be shared? Is it the right time? Is it all the, like, it communicates, hey, like, this is not about me. This is about the body. And so it helps to build this relationship of trust in which that can happen. Same thing with sharing something in a tongue. You know, it, this happens out of a, a trust relationship. So the question becomes, what happens when someone who is a trusted part of our body believes they have something to share in a tongue? Well, Paul stresses everything's got to be done in order. So, so in other words, uh, they shouldn't just start speaking out. You know, so if you, if you feel like the Lord's leading you to share something in a tongue, like you, you shouldn't just start speaking out in the midst of the service. What what you should do is is come to the elder chair that I just described, whoever's there, um, and share with them what's being stirred up in your your spirit. Now, if um, someone comes, like say they come to me, and like, hey, Jonathan, I believe that the Lord has something for the body, and it's in a tongue. Well, what would happen next? Well, Paul tells us there must be an interpreter. Um, so what I would do is I would go to the microphone first. You know, at the appropriate time, I'd share, hey, there's someone in our body who believes the Lord is leading them to share something with us in a tongue. Would everyone pray and ask the Lord if he is provi- prompting you to interpret? And if so, then just come over to the elder chair and let me know. And we would continue with our worship service. And if nobody comes uh, over to the chair, um, then that person doesn't speak. They do what Paul says. They just share what they have between themselves and the Lord. And we trust that that was the the point of it. And I also think that one of the things that displays, one of the ways that process right there strengthens the faith of the body as a whole is it helps the body to see, oh, whoever came up, this isn't about them. It's about the body. And if there's not an interpreter, they're willing to submit to the instruction of Scripture. This is, and, and that can help to break down. If some people have in their minds this kind of idea uh, through a, maybe abuses they've seen that, that the gift of tongues is something that people just always use to look super spiritual. I mean, a process like that, the Lord can be at work using that. In, in other words, what I'm saying is maybe the Lord really did prompt them to come even without intentionally providing an interpreter so that it could demonstrate to the entire body, hey, this is about the body. This is, this is not about any individual. Yeah, and you know what's interesting because we've been talking about in the context of like the community in which uh, Paul is talking about in this text, our community here, and I I think about an analogy would be like if someone came to me and uh, said, "Hey, I I really need prayer. Who would you like recommend for me to go to prayer?" And I, you know, Jeff and Park would obviously pop into my head because I believe they have a gift. There's a gift of intercession there, and I think. <clears throat> One of the things that's interesting when we're talking about sort of the practicalities of how this could function at Shades Valley on right. a Sunday morning, if we're in community together and we, we know each other and we love each other, I know this sounds wild, but there there may be some relationships that are formed and someone may know someone in the community that has the gift of interpretation. And so one way in which this could function is that person 
that feels like they're getting uh, the Lord is, t- you know, telling them, hey, I need yeah, to share something in them. tongues. They could actually go to that person that they mm-hmm. know has the gift of interpretation. And that would also be another way in which they could approach the elders. Hey, you know, so and so has this gift. Yeah, I have this. We've we've talked about it. We prayed about it. We we feel like we we, you know, she can she or he can interpret this message that I have and. That, that would be another way in which it could work, you know? You you can pray and ask the Lord to provide for yourself. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, Paul says that yeah. explicitly. I know that yep. some people might roll their eyes at that, like, oh, of course, the person speaking in tongues has interpretation. <laughs> but I'm like, the freaking apostle Paul said it <laughs> right. in 1 Corinthians 14. Argue with him, um, you know? So, but I mean, you can pray and ask the Lord to provide an interpretation. And this this might be getting a little... Well, not off topic, but a little aside right here. But some people might ask at this point, like if if someone's going to speak in a tongue and they are going to provide the interpretation themselves, why speak in the tongue at all? Why not just give the interpretation, or or why go through the process even if someone else is interpreting? Why why would God have someone speak in this way that nobody knows and then have an interpret? Why not just skip? It seems like you can skip that step. To that, I reply. One of the things, this is a truth that I've been thinking through a lot over the last year. Oh, wow. And I'm trying to think through, and it applies in so many ways. I'm trying to think mm-hmm. through the right way to phrase it. I don't think I'm done with phraseology here, but this is the truth. Um, our God is painfully and purposely inefficient. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. He I love is that. painfully and purposefully inefficient. And the illustration I keep giving people yeah, is I'm I like, love that. We love efficiency. We love to kill two birds with one stone. Mm-hmm. And God says, take five stones after one giant. Mm. Like he is, he only used one stone. What did he need the other four for? <laughs> yeah. You know, or or when God has an angel appear to Cornelius in Acts chapter 10 and say, hey, go get this guy named Peter so he can come and share the gospel with you. Why not just have the angel freaking share the gospel? It's an angel. Yeah. I'm going to be convinced. Yeah. The, ga- the game starts at six, God. We don't have time for this. Right. You know, he yeah. is he is painfully, but purposefully. He has reasons for, be, for doing things the way that he does. And here's something about the gift of tongues and interpretation is, one, it stinking makes us trust God. It, mm-hmm. may, it takes us out of our comfort zone. It, it stretches us. It makes us rely on one another. It mm-hmm. makes us, it, it humbles us before the Lord. Like, there's so many things we could talk through. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. so that's just what I would say to anyone who's got kind of that script playing through their head. Well, and I do think we have to really investigate the modern assumptions that we bring to the text. Absolutely. And the modern ways in which the church gathering looks like. And so we have that framework, the modern ways in which we think about the church and the community, because we bring all of that to the text and start thinking about this. And I think one of the you know great things you just did, Jonathan, is you've really gotten us to get behind the text to challenge some of these assumptions. But I do think there are a lot of kind of just modern philosophical and cultural assumptions that we bring to this. And we want this kind of certainty right, <laughs> and objectivity. And how can I scientifically verify <laughs> what has happened to know if this is legitimate? Right. And uh, the scriptures don't offer that. Rather, they offer 
uh, a kind of process they to often discern. undermine it. <laughs> yeah. It's like there needs to be a discernment. There needs to be a, a testing. There needs to be guidance with this. There need, you know, we need to um, think carefully about this. But that's different than kind of a modern uh, proof that we're looking for. I because think. modern to, to go at it in a modern, like kind of like scientific way of like, well, let me go through my different tests to see if tongues is legit or not. Yeah isolates me from the community and sets me up over and against the community and it emphasizes me as an individual yep. versus the need to depend upon interpretation and upon uh, testing and upon thinking through and discerning pushes me into the community yep. and forces me into reliance. One another. And that's what I would challenge people like First Corinthians 12, the entire illustration behind spiritual gifts and it being like a body is to push us into dependence upon God and one another. Mm-hmm. And so if your perspective on spiritual gifts can function without dependence upon God and dependence upon the body of Christ, I dare say it is not a biblical perspective on spiritual gifts. Mm. Yeah. So. Yeah. All right. That's good. Can I make one yeah, quick yeah, sidebar comment? And this just comes from a lot of pastoral conversations with people about those that pray in tongues. And it seems like because we rightfully emphasize, and I'm not disagreeing with anything that was just said, let me be clear on that, I totally affirm it, because we rightfully emphasize that when the church gathers together, speaking in tongues is to build up the body, right? Sometimes I think people can, um, with that emphasis, think, okay, well then it can never be for personal edification, and Jonathan, you spoke to this, but I just wanted to kind of reemphasize it. That, mm-hmm. and Sam Storms talks about this in the book that self edification is is a good thing, yeah. <laughs> right? So, like as we gather together and talk in this conversation, I'm edified by you guys, and like that's a good thing. As I read Sam's book, I'm edified, right? That that's a good thing. Self edification is only bad when it's done as an end of itself. Mm-hmm. And it turns the individual into themselves and separates them from the community. And the focus isn't on the building of the community. Right. But I think it should, should just be pointed out that Paul is like, hey, I pray in tongues a lot. Right. Right. <laughs> right? And when my theology, the only time I should do it publicly is when there's an interpreter. So right. that means that he's praying a ton in yep. tongues by himself. And he right. doesn't see that as a problem. And so I just say that, that biblically, yeah, I think yeah. there are grounds where tongues just like a lot we could go to a lot of other things um tongues as a way for the believer to be edified and to grow in their faith and intimacy with god uh is a good thing so i think of like jude uh 20 and 21 but you beloved building yourself up in your most holy faith and praying in the holy spirit keep yourselves in the love of god there is so there is a space for for um tongues being a way that a believer is personally edified in private prayer. Yeah, Sorry. 100%. And I think one of the things that's important to point out here too is in the context of a public gathering, there are multiple kinds of edification going on mm. even there. So what Paul's addressing right here where he's demanding the need for an interpreter uh, is when the body is being addressed as a body, as a whole. So in other words, uh, J.M., leads from the front he's addressing the body as a whole i preach from the front i'm addressing the body as a whole someone who comes up and prays or shares a testimony they're addressing the body as a whole you know and so that's the context in which we're talking about okay if somebody's going to speak in a tongue 
in mm-hmm. a way that's intended for the whole body to hear. Yep. And all of that. That's got to be interpreted. But let's say there are people in our body who have the gift of speaking in tongues. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, I know who several of those individuals are. Let's say I go up to them in the context of a Sunday morning service and I ask for prayer. And they say, you know, and they're praying for me and they say, hey, would it be, would you be encouraged if I prayed for you in a tongue? I can totally say yes mm-hmm. if that would encourage me and they can pray over me and there's right. no interpreter yeah. present. That's or a great point. Like that. right. yeah. And that's happening in the context of gathered worship, but it's also kind of private, yes. Yes. if you will. Very so, different. So there's multiple ways we can talk about the use of the gift, even in the context of a worship service. What Paul is specifically addressing yep. is is when I am using it in such a way that it's intended for the entire body. And yep. that's where he's like, got to be an interpreter. And, and one of the things that I think should mm-hmm. be pointed out right here is Paul's insistence that someone who says they have a tongue for the entire body uh, needs an interpreter. And if there's not an interpreter, they don't speak. They speak between themselves and God. Uh, I, I want to point out that shows that Paul does believe Speaking in tongues is not an ecstatic gift. What I mean by that is this isn't like all of a sudden my body is taken over. I lose control. And I lose control. I can't help it. It just starts coming out kind of thing. Yeah. Paul is very much under the assumption with all spiritual gifts that we remain in control of our faculties. Yes. Um, and I would I would highly caution people. I, I cannot think of a place. Maybe someone can challenge me on this. I'm open to being challenged. But I can't think of a place in Scripture where the Holy Spirit takes over someone's faculties. I can think of places where spiritual forces take over someone's faculties. Right. And it's always demonic. Mm. Right. So so I would highly caution you if you're ever dealing with something that seems like it puts you out of control. I just, I'm I'm not trying to say, I'm not trying to make blanket absolute statements. I'm just saying this is what I see. Yep. Um, yeah, that's a great point. So I, 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 I totally agree with that. Yeah. So, so Paul affirms if there's not an interpreter, you know, don't share it with the whole body. Now, if there is an interpreter, now we're getting fun. <laughs> <laughs> then, based upon scripture right here, what I would say at Shades Valley Community Church is we let them speak. Yeah. And we let the person interpret, and we would weigh what was said, just like we do with anything. Um. And in, in it all, our prayer would be that through it, God would be building up the body. And I think it's important to recognize just because something might make you uncomfortable or make you feel weird doesn't mean it isn't building up the body. Okay? What makes me feel uncomfortable and weird might build up another person. Maybe it's something that I need to grow in and be challenged in. And me being built up is being put in an uncomfortable position. I mean, just pastorally, we see this all the time at Shades. Oh, Something absolutely. happens on Sunday. Someone comes up to us and like, wow, the Lord moves so powerfully. And we're like, that's awesome. We give them a big hug. A next person comes up. That was so awkward and uncomfortable. <laughs> How are we going to address this? Right. Well, you know, I, I mean, just experientially. Yeah. Well, a comparison I would true. give you would be most <laughs> people feel awkward in evangelistic situations sharing their faith. You know, if you have an opportunity... I mean, let's say it's the most blatant opportunity ever to slap you in the face, like an unbeliever who's your friend is asking you, so tell me about this gospel thing. 
<laughs> like you would still probably the average person feels a little weird and feels awkward, but that doesn't mean that's a bad thing <laughs> or that you shouldn't lean into that. Yeah. You know, absolutely you should. And that is the Lord building and, yep. and growing you. And so, so if you're at shades and like, man, this kind of makes you uncomfortable, but it's being practiced in a way that's in line with scripture and biblical, I would encourage you not to shy away from that, even if it makes you uncomfortable. So, mm-hmm. so yeah, yeah. We all bring church baggage into Sunday morning, and because of the ways our church experiences and church wounds, I mean, I'm very sympathetic to this. Shape us. There are certain things that are gonna feel um, difficult or hard or awkward, and certain things we're gonna resonate with. And I think just having an awareness of that and an awareness that we're all different and have different experiences and responses to things can go a long way. I think I've grown a lot in this area since being at Shades. When I first came, I was constantly anxious when things would happen. (laughs) Oh, I don't like this. And, oh, how are we going to, you know, clean this up? Or how are we going to explain this? Or what are we going to do about this? I mean, it was just kind of ongoing. And I've really just grown a lot more comfortable and there being things that happen that I might not necessarily resonate with or I might not find in the moment personally is edifying. There being space for that because I think I've just seen how it can be edifying to other people and how there can be something powerful in allowing some space for right. differences to happen and I, the environment that that creates. Yeah. So. Yeah, and I think one one of the final things I wanted to remember to say kind of on this this subject is so people might have the question, okay, Jonathan, you've just described like the way that this looks in the context of corporate worship. Well, what if it happens at Shades but not in that way? I, I mean, what if someone does just start speaking out in a tongue? We've been in that situation before. We've had that habit. Well, well what, do, what do we do? Th- does that mean it's not from God because it didn't happen in 1 Corinthians 14 fashion or or what? Well, I would say a couple of things. Uh, The first thing is that, no, it does not mean that is not from God. Uh, The situation that Paul is addressing right here in 1 Corinthians 14 uh, is a situation where, like, they're not practicing tongues that way. There's a lot of people speaking in tongues. Apparently, they're speaking over one another, not even going one at a time. There's no interpretation. And what Paul doesn't do is he doesn't say, hey, you're speaking in tongues is not of the Holy Spirit. Right. This is illegitimate. It's blah, blah, blah. No, he says, hey, the gifts are good, but they're to be used in a way that builds up the body. So here's how we do that. Yeah. You know? So so it does not mean that uh, a person was like, you know, not following the leading of the Lord. Maybe the, you know, the Lord could totally be prompting them uh, to speak in a tongue. Um, maybe they just need to be discipled as to what that looks like at Shades, you know, or and why we think it it happens that way or, or what have not. So... If something like that happens at Shades, my instinct, and I think the instinct of all the leadership here, is not to like go, oh man, we gotta shut this down. Let's go tackle the person. You know? <laughs> or or let's stand up and let's let's like apologize to everybody and be like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry that happened. We're not gonna publicly and, rebuke. Right, right, right. That's right. not that kind of situation. Yeah. Just like so we have an open microphone. Sometimes someone may get up to share a testimony, and let's say a ton of what they share is gorgeous and beautiful, but maybe they get on a political rant or maybe they whatever. You know, maybe they share something they shouldn't have or what have not, um, or say something that's biblically incorrect. You know, in most situations, we're not going to like publicly rebuke them and tackle. It's a discipleship situation. Yeah. You know, most unless of the time. we feel like there is something that is 
harmful. Oh, absolutely. Destructive. Somebody or gets up and starts or like whatever. Starts like spouting uh, like heresy on purpose, trying to lead everybody astray. Right. Yeah, I'm going to tackle that person. Yeah, you know, <laughs> we're going to handle that situation. Yeah, no, a hundred percent. Yeah, but no, the thing is, is when it comes to spiritual gifts, all of us use our gifts in ways that can be improved. Um, all of us exercise our gifts right. in ways that we're learning. And and so there's room for that. There's grace for that, space for that. So, yeah, I just, I, I definitely wanted that to be clear. So, yeah, 100%. So here's my here's my summary thoughts. And if you guys want to give anything else, we totally can. I realize this is probably like our longest episode ever. Um, summary thoughts. Um, if you have the gift of tongues, I would exhort you to use it. In love, in the way that Scripture prescribes, um, you know, in the context of the body, don't think first of yourself and how you want to use the gift. Think of the body, and seek to use it in love for the good of the body. Without love, it's it's like every other gift; it's worthless. If I speak of the tongue in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. So, without love, tongues doesn't build up the body towards Jesus, and it turns unbelievers away from Jesus. But in love, submitting to Scripture, waiting for interpretation, being silent when there is none, people can see you're not making the gift about you. You really do want to use it to bless the body. That reflects the attitude of Jesus, who gave up his own rights uh, to save his church through his death on the cross. When you use your gifts, not for yourself, but for the good of the body, you point people to the gospel. Now, if you don't have the gift of tongues, and I'll, I'll give some self-disclosure right here. That, that includes me. That includes, I've prayed for it, uh, and maybe the Lord will give that gift to me one day, uh, but he has not yet at this point whatsoever. I don't know why. Maybe it's so that I, maybe it gives me a little bit more of a unique voice, I guess, as a pastor advocating for tongues, mm. even though I don't speak in it personally. Um. But if you don't speak in tongues, that includes me, I would exhort you and myself to receive those who do in love. Trust me, they've been met with enough skepticism from other Christians. And so when you receive them in love, it points them to Jesus. And that's the whole point of spiritual gifts is to shine a light on Jesus by showing his power and his love. We point one another towards him. So if you speak in tongues, follow scripture. And use it to point people to Jesus. If you don't speak in tongues, follow scripture. And receive those who do in a way that points them mm, to Jesus. That's good. So that's that's my summary thoughts. Any closing thoughts from anybody? We covered it. We answered all the questions. Sam, <laughs> Sam Storms, you shouldn't have even written a whole book. You could have done it in a podcast. <laughs> Oh, no. But, hey, do check out that book. Um, if you have more questions, of, of course, you can email us, um, Shades Valley, uh, midweek at shadesvalley.org. You can email us if you have more questions, want more clarifications. You can get coffee with any of us if you want to sit down and talk about these things more. Uh, Sam Storm's book is great. You can also find uh, Sam. Brad taught me this. Uh, any author that's written anything, if you don't want to read their book, you can find YouTube videos of them lecturing yeah, on it. Well, yeah. that's that's what I was going to bring Tons up. Tons of stuff. This is not a lecture, but more of a an Q, interview Q and A conversation dialogue. It's very helpful. Uh, the title of the YouTube video is "Heavenly Languages?" Question mark with Doctor Sam Storms. Uh, it's the the guys that are interviewing him, asking him questions, I'm not super familiar with them. It's the channel is the Remnant Radio, but I listen yeah, to they it. Got, they got a podcast. I, I don't know anything about their podcast, so I'm not saying go listen to all their episodes. This one in particular, 
I found really helpful. They're just asking him all yeah. kinds of questions. I don't know anything about, about their tons. podcast either, other than I've scrolled through mm-hmm. a lot of their episodes, just looking at titles, and they do a lot of interviews with a wide range yeah. uh, of people. So a lot of people that I know and love and trust, um, yeah. and then other people I've never heard of, and so anyway. But yeah, that that one uh, I think is super helpful if you're not like a big reader, but you can pick up his book. You want to take the deep deep dive, you can get D.A. Carson's Showing the Spirit. Um, yeah. 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 I mean, I would just say that, you know, for Jonathan, I not so much John Mark, but I think we grew up in environments that would affirm almost everything that we've said theologically, but in practice, I couldn't imagine a world where this would happen within the gathered body. Mm. I don't know if I'm speaking for both of us here, but you know, it shades, we're trying to not only have an appropriate biblical theology around these things, but we're also trying to figure out, okay, what does this look like in practice? Right. Yeah. Like this actually happens. If we affirm that the Bible says this can happen and we say it can, then okay. And I think figuring that out and some of the details and the practicalities within the theological biblical framework that we have, you know, is, is a little messy at times. And I think we're okay with that, just like with a lot of other areas. And so just like you wouldn't, go and hear a terrible sermon and be like, oh, I just don't do sermons anymore because I heard this one sermon and it was horrible <laughs> and the pastor and it was a terrible experience. To be, you know, yeah, like I think we've all um, experienced where these gifts, tongues, we'll talk about prophecy next week, can kind of go off the rails. And I think scripture even affirms that. Like, yeah, these, these things can go off the rails. It can get into kind of like kookyville pretty quick, you know, and I think we acknowledge that. And so it's something that we're mindful of, but we're also, um, want to allow a space in which these things can be practiced and we can learn and grow in discipleship. So I think what I'm asking of members is allow that space. And it doesn't mean that you have to be passive and you can't ask your questions or you can't have any objections or ask for clarifications or whatever, but just enter into the mess with us. Messy authenticity. There yeah. we go. Yeah. I mean, I think it, it speaks to the fact that we always talk about the three streams. We talk about evangelical, liturgical, and charismatic. And so what we're doing is opening up, further opening up a dialogue about you know, what does it really, what does it look like to be a charismatic church, you know, and, yeah. and for that to be a part of our DNA. And uh, so I think it, it opens up a great conversation of what this looks like uh, in the life of the community at, at Shades Valley. Yeah, that's great. Awesome. Well, good talk, guys. Yeah, that was a lot of good stuff. We'd love to hear from you. We should get Sam Storms. Man, I bet he would do it. I would love to get him. I'd Man, also love to get do it. I'd also love to get Andrew Wilson. Yes. He's another he's another hard hitter. Yeah, know? that's another book. Uh, That'd be great to get those guys you in there. Charismatic Worship. Spirit and Sacrament Yeah, uh, by Andrew Wilson. Go check that one out. It's really cool. It's uh, I mean, it's it's what we do here at Shades. It, it is the you know? closest <laughs> yeah. thing I have read in print to a description of the way we approach worship at yeah. Shades. Yeah. yeah, and you can find interviews with him, and he actually debates a guy that's a cessationist. He's fun to listen to because he's he's a Brit, right? He's a Brit. Yeah, yeah, and he's uh, he's great. So yep. tons of tons of great stuff out there. All that right, we've learned from. Please let us know your thoughts. Send us in your questions if you have anything further. We would love to just chat about it more. Let's talk about it more. I, I love this subject. Uh, I've been really excited about this whole series here on Midweek. So I hope you've enjoyed it. Email us at midweek at shadesvalley.org because it's Shades Midweek. 
you're part of the conversation. I was going to wait for Brad to do it, but then I did it anyways. All right. Thanks yeah. so much for listening. That was so good when you did it.